So, rejection really hurts. Uh, you know this, if you've ever been passed over for a promotion or spurned by a romantic interest, uh, picked last for a team, failed an audition, been ignored by a spouse, teased by a classmate. I mean, even, even relatively small things like your office mate gives you a sarcastic dig or your friend forgets to respond to your text for like, you know, two whole minutes. Uh, your Instagram post doesn't get as many likes as you had hoped from the people that you had hoped. Uh, you might get one word of criticism that quickly erases a hundred words of affirmation in your mind. And we feel the sting of rejection so easily. A 2010 University of Michigan study demonstrated that the human brain is hardwired to be sensitive to this sort of thing. Uh, our brains process the pain of rejection in the same neurological pathways that process physical pain, like breaking an arm. I guess this is why uh, being rejected can literally feel like a punch in the gut. And from a Christian perspective, I mean, I guess this makes a lot of sense, right? That if we are made in the image of the triune, relational to his core kind of God, then we're made to be fully known and fully accepted. But fear of rejection for many can become such a powerful force in our lives that we actually shut down and avoid some of life's most valuable experiences, vulnerable friendship, new opportunities, new relationships. In fact, fear of rejection can be so strong that it even causes Christians to avoid one of the things most important to us, and that's sharing Christ with our families, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And the ancient Christians who first received this letter from Peter, they were no different from us. They faced severe social rejection, and so they needed to know, is following Christ worth it? Is he worth being turned out on the street by my father or my husband? Is he worth my employer refusing to pay me any longer? Is he worth facing death threats against my family? Well, our current situation here in the West may not be quite so intense, but the fear is still the same. And the question is still the same. Is he worth it? Let's turn to 1 Peter if you're not already there. 1 Peter chapter 2. Start with verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so what's all this here at the beginning about living, a living stone and living stones and spiritual houses? Uh, what's the metaphor, right? Peter is telling us quite a bit about what it means to really be a Christian, what it means to be part of God's church. You see, Peter here is totally redefining, especially for people of the ancient world, his first century hearers, 
how it is that one connects to the divine, right? In the ancient world, each religion would have a temple of some sort, uh, the place that represented to them the dwelling of God or, or gods. And there would be priests that worked in that temple uh, to mediate the divine presence and to offer sacrifices uh, to those who would come to the temple seeking the help of the gods. So everyone in the ancient world would have immediately grasped the importance of temples, priests, and sacrifices. But Christianity really threw the ancient world a curveball when they arrived on the religious scene with no temples, no priests, and no sacrifices that anyone could see. In fact, the Romans called the first Christians atheist because they lacked these marks of typical religious ceremony of the day. So what is Peter getting at by saying that Christians are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house? Is he calling you a brick? What's his his dig here? But he's, he's simply saying that God is not found in special buildings or by special gurus. He dwells among the people that have come to the living stone, to Christ. And this, is, this has some pretty stunning implications for what it means to be the church. First of all, it means that Christians together, we have the holy presence of God dwelling among us. He lives with us. We have unhindered access through Christ to the very presence of God. I mean, think about this for just a minute. God's dwelling place on earth. It's no longer in a tabernacle as in the time of the Exodus, no longer in a temple as it was in ancient Israel, but the very community of Christ followers is now the dwelling place of God. God is interested in building a house made out of people. And the second stunning implication here is that Christians together have the happy privilege of representing God to the world around them. You know, in ancient times, only priests bore the noble task of representing God. But in Christianity, a radical change has taken place. And Pastor Dick Lucas uh, sums it up really well. He says, the church does not have a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. The church does not have a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. So if you want to know God, If you want to encounter the divine, you don't have to go see a spiritual guru or go visit a fancy building. You can see him in the people of God. Now, wait a minute, you say, don't don't Christians sort of have temples and priests? I mean, we do have buildings. We have pastors, right? Isn't that basically the same thing? And I can't say this strongly enough. No, (laughs) it's not the same thing. The building is ultimately a luxury. It's a really helpful one. I'm deeply thankful for the new carpet we have over in the youth building. But buildings, they give us a place to meet. They keep the rain off, they keep the cold out, and they generally keep our children contained. But the church can live without a building. It has for a long time and continues to do so all around the world. God does not live here. And neither do pastors, as one of my youth was shocked to find out. <laughs> we, don't, we don't live here like up in the rafters, have a little loft for us. Um, but pastors are not priests. Pastors are gifted and tasked with teaching and leading in a congregation, but that's merely a difference in service. It's not a difference in status. 
Larry's ability to open the government uh, notwithstanding. But uh, you don't have to become a pastor or go to seminary to get some sort of special backstage pass to go see God. Doesn't exist. All Christians together bear the privilege of being near to God and representing him to the world. So how do we do that? Peter tells us, verse five, through the spiritual sacrifices that we make. Obviously, we're not killing animals, so this is of our lips and of our lives. Hebrews 13, 15 is really helpful here. It says, through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This means, you know, among other things, that the way we worship together, even on Sunday mornings, really matters. Worshiping and singing is not like it's just a warm-up for the sermon. We all approach the very presence of the living God of the universe to bring him our heartfelt worship. And oftentimes we just think, you know, we're getting up to, to go to church. But far more than that is meant to occur. Genuine worship of the true God should cause people to look and to see for themselves. Wow, God must be real because he dwells amongst this people. Look at how they love him. And of course, genuine worship doesn't just occur here when we're meeting together. It occurs in the context of our daily lives. Keep reading in Hebrews 13 to the next verse. You find verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And of course, we'd be remiss to leave out Romans 12, a familiar passage to many of you, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the actions we perform with our very bodies, when we're kind to our families, when we share what we have with someone in need, when we extend hospitality to a stranger, when we apologize for behavior that was not God-honoring, when we live out our faith in everyday life, we help people see God. And actually, in our staff meeting each Monday, um, our staff evaluates the previous Sunday services and all the things that have gone on during the week, and one of the items on our agenda is called God Sightings which I've always found to be a funny way to put it. You know, I kind of raised my head. Yes, mm, excuse me, I did see God. He kind of ducked out for a moment back in the corner of the children's wing. I think I saw him for a second, but pretty sure it was God. Uh, of course, that's not what we mean when we say God sightings. We say, have you seen God at work? How did you see God at work yesterday? But, you know, I wonder when people come to our gatherings or when people go to your home, when they visit your small group, when they go to your school, would they get a God sighting? And by our welcome and by our worship, would people say, God is truly among you? This is the calling of every church. This is the calling of every Christian because the church does not have a priesthood. It is a priesthood. The church does not have a temple. It is a temple. And I think these days, even among young, modern, secular-minded people, there's a revived interest in the spiritual realm. People recognize they have this inextinguishable desire to connect with the transcendent 
and also to form deeper social connections than the internet has been able to provide us. People long to be connected spiritually and socially. Uh, But instead of turning to traditional religious structures, which have failed to impress many people, many modern people have created other avenues, you know, meetups, uh, microbreweries, meditation groups, fitness groups, etc. And I'm not necessarily critiquing those things, but I think they reveal something about a longing for spiritual and social attachment beyond what internet and perhaps traditional religion has seemed to offer them. And maybe that even describes some of you here today. You know there's something more out there, but you just can't quite put your finger on it, and you know you haven't found it yet. Well, Peter has something very important to say to anyone who's looking to know and experience real spirituality and lasting community. And what Peter's going to ask you is he's going to ask you to consider the foundation for your spiritual life and even your social life. What, what is it built upon? How do you know in the long run that whatever it is you're building on will meet your deepest, most fundamental spiritual and social needs? And I think this is part of why Peter describes Jesus as a cornerstone. Now look at verse six again. We'll read through verse eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter describes Jesus as a living stone, a precious cornerstone. This simply means that Jesus is the critical foundation for any real connection that you might want to have to God and any lasting connection that you might have to others. Right, the cornerstone of an ancient building, this was the first stone to be put in place, okay? It was a massive stone block and a massively expensive block because it had to be square and true because I guess somebody had to move it, right? Uh, I don't think all ancient cornerstones was, were that big, but that one's pretty awesome. Can you imagine trying to move that thing? No tractors, no bulldozers, no anything. But the cornerstone massively precious, expensive, because it would serve as both the master stone for the foundation and the junction point of the first two walls of the building. Look, Peter's not the only one to use this cornerstone metaphor for Jesus. Uh, Let me see if I can explain to you what I mean by quoting from the Apostle Paul from his letter to the Ephesians. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's Jew and Gentile alike. For through him, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I know that was kind of a mouthful, but do you see what he's saying? If you want to draw near to God, if you want a lasting relationship with him, you must be built on, building on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And, interestingly, if you want a real and lasting relationship with others, you must also be connected to the cornerstone. Because Jesus, by his death, has made us all truly equals. I'm not in competition with you for the love or acceptance of our Father. We all can have the same access to God. We each have our place in the building. We all belong. Regardless of race, age, political affiliation, character flaws, we still belong together. And I can give thanks that God has chosen to place you next to me in his house that he's building. And I can give thanks that he's still working on us and using you and using me to rub each other's rough stone edges off. What I'm saying is the gospel with its teaching, both of the reality of human sin and divine forgiveness is really the only solid foundation that can sustain the weight of true, long-term, vulnerable community. Now, I know to many modern people that this idea that Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God seems very narrow. Uh, Many people are perfectly fine with the idea of a higher being or a God of love, but Jesus crucified for my sin, giving my life over to him. I have to believe all that. And perhaps for some of you or for some of your friends, this really trips you up. Uh, You can't seem to get past it. And I, I mean, I understand that in a religiously diverse society, this view does seem rather exclusive. (laughs) But please understand me as well. What you may see, your, your friends may see, is unnecessary narrowness we see as unspeakable kindness. Rejecting Jesus because he feels too exclusive feels a bit to us like rejecting the exclusive offer of a firefighter reaching out his hand to you on the 10th floor of a burning building. You say, sir, is this really the only way out? And we say, just take his hand. We're not trying to be narrow for the sake of being narrow is what I'm trying to say. So two things here. One, don't miss out on the cornerstone. If you're considering what to build your life upon, both spiritually and socially, don't cast Christ aside you may find you're actually rejecting the most foundational thing in life. And this is a warning for religious people as well as non-religious people. You should notice from the passage that the builders who rejected Jesus were in fact highly religious people, the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus quotes this passage from the Old Testament at the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, and you can read that later if you like, but Know that those who first rejected Jesus, they were trying to build their temple, if you will, out of moral perfection, out of being good, uh, keeping all the commandments of the Bible. Their cornerstone was religious observance and good deeds. And of course, this cornerstone never really holds up. Because if you think you're succeeding in working your way into God's house by your good behavior, you'll inevitably inevitably become proud. You look down your noses at everyone who isn't doing as well as you. And on the other hand, if you think that you're failing in your moral quest for moral perfection, you'll hide from God 
You'll hide from others in shame. Either way, the cornerstone of moral religiosity always cracks. So, what cornerstone are you building on? Don't miss out. Don't trip over the cornerstone. Secondly, don't freak out about the cornerstone. Don't miss out and don't freak out. Here's what I mean, talking to Christians here. I say don't freak out because it's very obvious from the passage that many people will reject Jesus. You saw that in verse four, verse seven, and verse eight. And this should not surprise us. The fact that Peter quotes this from the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament prophecies show us that God certainly knew that this sort of rejection of Christ was coming. I mean, even the end of verse eight, it's a bit of a head scratcher, isn't it? Uh, They stumble because they disobey. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I don't intend to try to untie the mysterious knot of divine sovereignty and human responsibility today. And don't ask me to try to do it unless you literally wanna see smoke come out of my brain. But Peter has a reason for bringing this up. So don't let your, your seminary students in your small group hijack your discussion this week about the finer points of Calvinism. Uh, Peter's point is that the rejection of Jesus does not thwart the plan of God. In fact, this is what he used to accomplish it. The builders who rejected Jesus by crucifying him ended up fulfilling God's very purpose of setting the cornerstone in place by his death and resurrection. You see, no one's rejection of Jesus thwarts the plan of God. And I think, maybe for me at least, this is a real fear sometimes in discussing our faith with others. We're worried, not just that people will reject us or think less of us, but we're a little bit worried that they'll reject Christ. We don't want that to happen. We love them. We, th- we think they need him. And so we fail to be bold because we're worried about rejection of Christ. Fail to be clear, maybe sometimes. But you need to know that no one's rejection blindsides God. And then, of course, the other fear that many of us have is just being rejected ourselves. And while most of us in the West aren't necessarily facing a high level of persecution, we just don't want people to think that we're weird. (laughs) You know, we don't like it when people think less of us. We don't want to make things awkward or tense. And so we're just unsettled and we fail to be bold or clear. And we back down from taking opportunities to speak to others about Christ. And as I was studying this passage this week and thinking about just, okay, how does this need to work out in Carson's life? It just made me wish that this passage was written by someone who really understood what this struggle was like. Because by nature, I am conflict avoidant. I don't like disagreeing with people and I care way too much about what they think of me. I mean, seriously, sometimes I'm hesitant to just pull out my Bible in a coffee shop. (laughs) And in Wake Forest, like 50% of the people in the coffee shop are seminary students. If only this passage was written by someone who knows what it's like to be a bit of a coward. (laughs) What do you know? (laughs) It is. You remember Peter's story? Biggest mouth of all the disciples. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter told him he'd never abandon him, even if all the other disciples left him. But before the night was over, Fearing for his life, Peter was swearing to a teenage girl that he had never known Jesus. He betrayed him. He got scared and he backed down. 
And yet Jesus still went to the cross for Peter. And after he rose from the dead in one of the most touching scenes in scripture, Jesus sits by a fire with his friend and he talks to him, he forgives him, restores him, he accepts him again, even though Peter was a coward. And once Peter knew the forgiveness and acceptance of Jesus, he was able to stand before a mob of Pharisees a few weeks later and say this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They threatened them. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Wow, (laughs) this is a new Peter. You see, Peter found the acceptance of men nothing when compared to the acceptance of Christ. And what's, I don't know, maybe even more encouraging to me is that Peter still has his moments of cowardice later down the line after this. But he's always restored to boldness when he's reminded of the truth of his acceptance in Christ. And so he writes, he who believes in him will never be put to shame. Not finally, not ultimately. But Peter knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel the fear of rejection, to doubt, to be afraid, to back down, to stay silent when you should have spoken. Peter knows. And so if we're going to be able to handle rejection, we have to experience what Peter experienced and what he longed for these these first hearers to experience. And that is the total acceptance of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse nine and 10. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what Peter's saying? Because of sheer mercy, God has radically and completely accepted you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter needed these first readers to see that even if their fathers and mothers rejected them, the Lord would take them in. They were considered second-class citizens at the time, facing threats, slander, sanctions. But they were not second-class in the eyes of God. To God, Peter tells them, they are chosen and precious in his sight. And I know some of these metaphors uh, are probably a bit lost on us today. You know, chosen race, royal priesthood. It's like, okay, great, 
thanks, I guess. <laughs> but think about it. For these ancient people, in order to be a priest, in order to be near to God, you had to be chosen. You had to be from a certain lineage, from a particular family. But now, because of the mercy of God, we all can become part of his family. I mean, it's like we've been adopted by the King of England to live in Buckingham Palace. And you can go all the way back into the master bathroom. <laughs> Here's what I mean by this. You know what I mean, I think. When you go over to someone's house, you can tell how close you are to them by what rooms of the house you go in or don't go in or can hang out, right? Every house has a holy of holies that is usually off limits to guests. You know, the living room may be generally presentable. Uh, you could entertain a stranger that drops by your house there. Kitchen friend, it's the next level up. Uh, they come into your kitchen. They may even cook with you and clean your dishes. Um, but usually none of my friends, when they're over, go hang out in the master bedroom or the master bathroom of my house. You know, that's my room. It's like it's kind of sacred space. And let's be honest, it's the place where you put all the stuff where you don't want people to see when they come over to your house, right? But it's funny, I mean, when I go home to see my parents, I still, like if I need something from their bedroom or bathroom, <laughs> I really don't feel weird about going in there to get it. Usually it's a Band-Aid or something from working on a project at their house and I cut myself and I just, you know, go back to the bathroom and get it. And in my house with my two-year-old son, there are no boundaries, right? Anywhere I go in the house, he is there with me. There's nowhere that he feels like he cannot go. Totally at home. He belongs in my house. He can come near me anytime. To be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, means all Christians belong in the house of God, fully accepted, full access to him. And so what happens when you really get a sense of your security and standing with God? Well, verse nine, you'll proclaim to others the excellencies of God toward us, namely his mercy and kindness on us as sinners. You see, personal witness is the overflow of personal worship. When you really get, when you really begin to grasp and feel the mercy of God towards you, you cannot help but speak of it. Um, Ashley and I sometimes joke about how we cannot move away from Wake Forest because we have such a stinking good ice cream shop and such a good coffee shop here. We have both. What else do you need? You know? So every time friends and family come in town, uh, we take them to one or both of these places, oftentimes more than once. And so, you know, we have tasted the richness of the cream and the smoothness of the beans. And we can't help but talk about it. We just bring people, we just, I, you know, I'm, I'm like an evangelist for these places, right? And so when we as Christians have a witness problem, we more than likely have a tasting problem. Perhaps Christ's love has become dull to us, only a concept, no longer a heart-wrenching reality. Pastor Tim Keller tells an insightful story about this. He says, uh, many years ago in my first pastorate, I met with a teenage girl in our congregation. She was about 16 at the time, and she was discouraged and becoming depressed. I tried to encourage her, but there was a revelatory moment when she said, yes, 
I know Jesus loves me. I know he saved me. I know he accepts me. I know he's gonna take me to heaven. But what good is it when no boy at school will even look at me? She said she knew all these truths about being a Christian, but they were of no comfort to her. The attention, or lack of it, of a cute boy at school was far more consoling, energizing, and foundational for her joy and self-worth than the love of Christ. Of course, this was a perfectly normal response for a teenage girl. Nevertheless, it was revealing of how our own hearts work. Jonathan Edwards would say that she had the opinion that Jesus loved her, but she didn't really know it. Christ's love and acceptance, these were abstract concepts to her, while the love and acceptance of others was real to her heart. How would you have finished her sentence? I know Jesus loves me. I know he accepts me. I know he's going to take me to heaven. But what good is it when... How would you finish that? You see, it can be so easy to take for granted the acceptance of a holy God. It can become unsurprising to us. You know, of of course he loves and accepts me. He's God. That's his job, right? But it's not like that. There is no of-courseness about the love of God. He did not have to accept us. We certainly don't deserve it. He loves us simply because he chose to love us. And his choice was costly. Our acceptance came at the price of his own rejection. You see, Jesus was not just rejected like us or like we will be. He was rejected for us. He bore the ultimate rejection that you truly deserve so that you might have the unshakable acceptance you so desperately seek. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, spent by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, he was stripped naked and shamed so that you would not have to bear the shame of exposure on the day of judgment. He took the blame for your most heinous sins so that you could be declared innocent from them. He was rejected by his own people, betrayed by his friend, abandoned by his disciples, and forsaken by his father, so that you would never have to know the most terrifying rejection of all, the rejection of God. Christ took the only rejection that really matters so that you could have the only acceptance that really matters. You know this, the approval of people always wears off. It's never enough. You can never quite get it, And you're always worried that once you do have it, you won't be able to keep it. It's like sand in your hands. But this, the acceptance of the king of the universe, won for you by the rejection of his own son, this is an acceptance that cannot be lost and need not be earned. If you are accepted like this, whose rejection do you need to be afraid of?
So today, how do we need to respond to this? Uh, the worship team can, can come on back up, but think through this with me. Uh, perhaps there's a couple ways we could respond today. One, perhaps as a Christian, you recognize that you've been so quiet about your faith when you know you should have been bold. The fear of people's rejection has, has overshadowed the reality of God's acceptance. And like Peter, you need to sit down with Jesus and ask him to help you see again how wonderfully and fully accepted you are so that you can be seated and, and settled enough to take the next step, whatever that is, in a relationship or in a gospel conversation with a friend or neighbor that you've been thinking about. You just need to take time to sit with Jesus today. Feel his acceptance again and pray. Pray for boldness to take the next step.